Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. We're, you know, if you're in the market for a car, we're going to talk about the summer car buying and the supply chain issues and how that could potentially affect you and, and all of Canadians. We also want to discuss America and China. Now, those are the two biggest economies in the world, the two biggest superpowers. And of course, they've been struggling with each other. They've got a very complex re um, uh, relationship. So we're going to speak to the author of Power Rivals, and we're going to talk about the, the interaction and what you know, what that relationship between those two big superpowers holds in the future. But right now, let's discuss pre-planning your memorial and or your final arrangements. Rob, we talk about planning um, in, in a number of different aspects. Mm -hmm. Like when we talk about the four buckets and planning around income and, and growth and uh, health and legacy and tax and all those kinds of things, you know, one of the areas I don't think we've done a show on, at least not, <clears throat> not in my recollection, is sort of pre-planning memorial services. And it's, it tends to be a time of, of stress, right? Mm -hmm. Something's happened in a family's uh, uh, life and, um, you know, they've lost, lost someone they've loved. And, and, you know, is it a good idea to have some of those things thought through and planned in advance so that you're not trying to deal with it at that time? Yeah. I, I think it's a great conversation to have. I've been through it personally with my own family and felt the stress and feeling like you're just getting thrown decisions that you have to make on the spot and that's it. So I think that the planning is a big thing. Well, and Teresa Jones is going to join us today, right? Nobody better than the owner and funeral director at Choice Memorial to help us understand what that process mm -hmm. looks like and, and, and what's involved. So Teresa, first of all, thank you. Welcome to the show and thank you for taking some time with us. Thank you, Stephen Rob. I appreciate the invitation to be here with you today and to discuss a topic that I think is extremely important and I'm very passionate about, which is pre-planning funerals. Terrific. Yeah, it, Teresa, I'll jump to it first. I mean, we've been through a pandemic here and I think people have a heightened sense of health and what could happen and maybe thinking about this more. So have more people started pre-planning memorial services in your experience? Definitely. So, you know, if I walk back to the beginning of my career, which was 25 years ago, so I started in funeral service in um, 1997 in beautiful Brandon, Manitoba. And back then, only a handful of people would uh, would do their, their pre-planning. Um, you know, and, and death and funerals were really taboo topics back then as well. So if we look, um, you know, ironically, I was actually hired to do the uh, pre-planning program and to build and develop it 25 years ago. Um, if we fast forward now, you know, every funeral home has a has a website. People can sit and talk about it. Um, definitely the, the pandemic has uh, made people think about final final expenses and uh, wishes. And um, and people are more educated now, you know, with the internet, with with people like you um, in the, the final planning with estates and trusts and wills and um, that this funeral pre-planning has become a whole part of that as well. Teresa, maybe you can walk us through that. So, so part of what this, this show is about called More Than Money is about helping people understand what's available to them, things they can be thinking about, uh, and they can incorporate those ideas that they think are good for their family and so on and so forth. And I'm curious, um, 
to your point, I think that the the topic of passing along is uh, you know is taboo. It's certainly scary for many people. We've got an aging population, but it is a reality that we're all going to face as an individual and as a family. And I'm I'm curious about you just walking us through the the pre uh, the pre planning process and and for those that are apprehensive, maybe some ideas and thoughts about what they could expect or how you might overcome that. So that you can save the, you know, the anxiety and the stress that will inevitably happen if you if you haven't thought this through. I'm going to go on the assumption that you've made that decision, that you're you're ready to pre-plan and you're in the funeral home and and we're starting that process. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is vital statistics. So when a person passes, we register their their death with vital statistics. So we're going to ask for things like their legal name, date and place of birth their parents' names, where they were born, social insurance number, occupation, et cetera, et cetera. That's the first part is the vital statistics. Second part would be what is the final form of disposition? Are you choosing a burial or are you choosing a cremation? If you're choosing burial or cremation, is there any type of a service? Are we having a service in a chapel? Are we going to a church? Are we going to your your favorite pub? Um, Are we going to the backyard? Where would that service be held? Um, we'll talk about things like a viewing. Would you want somebody to come and, and to see you prior prior to the cremation or burial? And if so, would that be just your family? Or would you open that up to, to your friends and your, and your co-workers? Um, we would also talk about merchandise. So you have that opportunity to choose your own casket or your own cremation container if you're choosing cremation and your own urn. Um, the cemetery, where are you going to be laid to rest? Do you have a cemetery plot already? Do you want a above ground columbarium for your urn? Do you want your family to scatter? So we'll talk about those, which I call kind of the, the meat and the bones, the, ma- the main part of the planning. Um, and some people will leave it there and let their family make those other decisions, such as music and flowers and pallbearers and who's the pastor or the person who's going to officiate or who's going to do the eulogy. Um, I actually have one gentleman who's the guy that always needs to have the last word and he's videotaped himself giving his own eulogy so that when that time comes, he gets that final word. Um, so, so we plan all of that. Then we're going to talk about the cost and what does this cost. And we have the option that people can leave what we call an unfunded funeral arrangement, an unfunded prearrangement, where all the wishes are there. And then whenever that time of need comes, the cost will be whatever the, that current price is. The other option, families have... Um, that they can prepay and lock those prices in. So they would pay at today's rate, and whether that service is needed in one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, the laws that govern us say that this is locked in and guaranteed, and it's illegal for us to say, gee, the price of gas went up, I need a little more money. We've agreed and signed a contract for that. When people ask about prepaying and where does the money go, just so people know that that money is safe, it is held third party, uh, most of the funeral homes in the city here and, and, and elsewhere in the province um, use insurance to, to hold the funds until the time of need. Teresa, we always talk about planning and sharing your wishes with family and, and how with loved ones, the, the best way to relieve that burden feeling, right? The, that feeling of burden. So how does pre-planning a memorial service do the same? Do you feel that that happens? Absolutely. And probably the easiest way for me to to explain that would be to give you an example. So probably about 23 years ago, I had a a lady in her 80s that came in and her husband had passed. And I said to her, would you like him buried or cremated? And she said to me, I don't know. We never had this conversation. 
So we talked about different options. She decided to have his casket present at the church for a service and to cremate him afterwards. And at the end of the service, she ran up to me and said, Teresa, please don't cremate him. I don't know that that's what I want to do. I said, take your time and make the decision. And a week went by and two weeks went by and I reached out to her and she was struggling so much because they didn't have the conversation and she couldn't decide if she should bury him or cremate him. So in the very least, when we talk about this, you know, let your loved ones know some of your wishes. Talk to your funeral home um, and get different ideas and, and make sure you communicate what you'd like to do in, in the least, right? We, we'd love for people to come into the funeral home and have everything down on pen and paper, but not everybody is comfortable doing that. So at least um, at the minimum, have that conversation. You know, I think the, the, the pre-planning and in, in, in that conversation, even your wishes expressed through your personal directives, your will, so on and so forth, right? To take the pressure. I mean, all of this pre-planning, Teresa, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but all the pre-planning is really designed to, one, ensure that your wishes uh, are respected and that service takes place in accordance with what you would want to have happen. But number two, it takes the burden of those decisions, the uncertainty, the anxiety around, you know, a really difficult event that's taken place in the family. It takes a burden off everybody else. And ultimately, I think the experience then, which is a difficult one, uh, you know, at, at best, um, becomes something very different without the anxiety of all the other things on top of it. Would that be a, a fair assessment of, uh, you know, of the results of taking care of those arrangements in advance? I've never had somebody say, gee, I wish mom or dad hadn't done this ahead of time. But the number of people that say, I'm so grateful that they came and did this and had everything laid out. And, you know, I'd ask your, your listeners a, a question right now, and it's an uncomfortable question. But if something happened to you right this moment and you passed, who is that person that then has to go and choose that funeral home, go and make those decisions, decide on burial and cremation and viewing and clothing and all of those things that have to be decided when you haven't laid out the groundwork for them? That's a really big task in the middle of, uh, of intense grief for families. Teresa, we've got about a minute to go, and I'm going to ask you a question about trends. You've been in the business a long time. I'm very curious, just uh, on a personal uh, interest, what have you seen change over the past 20 years? Probably the biggest change that I've seen is the is the trend from that full church traditional funeral with a burial um, to a lesser expensive um, basic cremation. So a lot of families nowadays are saying, you know what, I don't want all the bells and the whistles. I just want a cremation and then I want my family to go have a party or go have a gathering somewhere else. Um, that the that traditional funeral has changed, right? We're seeing, you know, I want you to raise a glass and, and toast to me and I don't want you to cry. I want it to be more of a celebration. So a huge, huge um, difference in, in the 25 years, especially that I've been in the profession. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. But before we let you go, if somebody wants to get a hold of you for further information, how can they do that? Yeah, you can, uh, you can go to our website, which is choicememorial.com. Uh, you can call us at uh, 403-277-7343. That's Choice Memorial. Um, and we're here to educate people. We're, we're zero pressure. We're here to answer any questions that you have. We invite you to come in and, and talk to us. And uh, there's no pressure. We are just here to give you the information so that you can make an informed decision. Teresa, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave and Rob. We've been joined uh, by Teresa Jones, owner and funeral director at Choice Memorial. Rob, that's all part of the journey that we're going to go on, uh, you know, as we move into and through retirement is that final step. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not the final step for the family to be final step for an individual, but 
uh, again, planning is, is an important part of it. Now, when things go crazy, markets go crazy, things are up and down, right? Planning is one of your best tools to make sure you can navigate the choppiness, the uncertainty, the anxiety of getting through, you know, these moments in time. Rob, supply chain issues coming out. Um, have you gone by a car lot or a, a dealer? I, I've almost driven by them because there was no cars. <laughs> There's more cars in the parking lot in downtown Calgary during the pandemic. <laughs> there Absolutely. is cars on a, on a dealership lot right now. It is interesting. I had I had a client talk to me about how the Tesla. There was so many vehicles in Vancouver, um, but when the other dealers, nothing. So there's a whole supply chain issue, and mm -hmm. people are wanting to buy cars. It's uh, they're they're getting into the rhythm. They get to go travel now, maybe drive around the country, and uh, uh oh. I want to buy a new car, but it's not there. Or you have to wait, like, isn't it like 18 years before the next one comes out? <laughs> <laughs> and so, what to look for, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so oh, let's, yeah. let's talk about this. And we got our, our professor of supply chain management, Rob Hanfield is here. He's with uh, North Carolina State University. Rob, welcome to the show. No, a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm, I'm originally uh, a Calgary boy, believe it or not. So born and raised. So uh, pleasure to be here. Are you really? Yeah. Yeah, grew up in Mount Royal and went to Bishop Carroll. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's awesome. There you go. So you can you can attend. You can understand the, the the frustration as we get into the summer season. People wanting to get to the mountains or go beyond that in their in a brand new vehicle, but there's nothing on the lots. Let's talk about uh, what are you seeing with first of all supply chain. Then we can talk about vehicles in Canada. Tell us about the situation that you're seeing when it, when it comes to supply chain. Well, you know, un unfortunately, the, the supply chains are really screwed up right now. And it's not just, it's a technical term, uh, and it's not just uh, automotive, uh, the automotive industry. It's, uh, you know, it's lumber, it's steel, uh, you know, it's, it's food, you know, wheat shortages we're looking at. Uh, but the big one, of course, that everyone's talking about is semiconductors. And, um, you know, the semiconductors are used increasingly in just about everything. They're used in electronics, they're used in computers, and of course they're used in cars. And, uh, you know, all of our, uh, you know, our, our dashboards now are, are digital, uh, you know, our, our uh, cruise control, our, our uh, pedometers, every, everything is, is, is electronic and controlled by semiconductors. And if they don't have those available, which they don't, uh, then obviously the assemblers cannot produce cars and you have shortages on the lot, which is what you're, you're experiencing today. There, let's talk about the semiconductor as an example because it's a good point that you've raised. The problem that I'm seeing, first of all, is that there was a, a higher demand for semiconductors. If my math is correct from the last few reports I've read, about 20 to 30% of all vehicles now are either electric vehicles or, or premium vehicles, which means that there's going to be a lot more um, demand for, for chip uh, and uh, semiconductors in there. And then on top of that, uh, because of, of what's happened in the pandemic, to actually start up a brand new um, semiconductor plant, it can take four to five years is my understanding of that. So it's not like you can just grow it and, and then, you know, let it, let it be uh, shipped out like it was wheat. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is a semiconductor issue that, that could take possibly four or five years before we can see some equilibrium in the market. Is that, is that fairly accurate? That's, that's exactly right. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. And 
if we go back in history again to the beginning of COVID, you know, what happened during that time frame is everyone was scared that demand would, would go off a cliff. And so a lot of the automotive companies canceled all of their orders with the large semiconductor companies. And by the way, the, the big ones, 50% of all semiconductors are made in Taiwan through Taiwan Semiconductor and another 25% made by Samsung. So it's almost all in, in Korea and, and Taiwan. And uh, then when demand took off, remember, everyone started buying cars all of a sudden because they were bored sitting around at home. And uh, then they went, oh, wait, wait, we made a mistake. We actually do need those semiconductors. In fact, we need more than what we ordered previously. And they're like, well, get to the back of the line, guys. You know, Lenovo, uh, Apple, everybody else is uh, at the front of the line. And so they were, they were pushed out. Their demand was pushed out. But, but there was a bigger problem as well, which is the semiconductor industry in general. Um, you know, those guys got, got kind of scared in the past because they built too much. And then they had all these excess capacity and these plants laying around. So they became very skittish about capital investment. And they, and they would invest in, in factories that was just barely enough to meet demand. And uh, so now, you know, demand has taken off and they're way behind. And they're saying, hey, it's going to take us, like you said, two, three, four years to build these, these fab plants. And, and it's not just the plants, but it's all the entire supply chain, all the suppliers that go with it. Uh, so it's, it's a very complex technology. It's kind of like a voodoo technology. It's, it's, it's not part art, part science. And, uh, and so it takes a long time to get it right. Rob, you know, as Canadians and Calgarians, you know, we've been stuck in traffic the last couple of days here dramatically. So we're a driving city in a driving country in, in, uh, in the rural areas. How do you see this playing out for Canadians specifically? Is this a bigger issue in Canada? Well, well, it is. And, um, you know, Canadians, as you know, love their cars and uh, it's a big country. So we got to do a lot of driving and uh, it, it is a problem. And the other impact, of course, is the price of gas. I think we're all being hit by the price of gas as well. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you're if you have a car right now and it's on its last legs, you might want to look at the used market. And, and the used market is crazy right now, too, because you know, you can get a you can get a, a used car almost now for the same price as, as a uh, as a new car. Believe it or not, it, the, the the economics have, have kind of gone upside down, and so I think for Canadians, we we've got to be thinking about well, how long can I keep my current vehicle, and and even if I want to fix it, the parts plan ahead. The parts could take several months to get here as well. So, so just taking that a little bit further, is there a difference in a car buyer from the United States versus Canada? And the reason why I ask that question is because we hear a lot uh, throughout the last few years of Canadians buying vehicles in the States um, and Canadians selling vehicles to Americans. Is that going to be a more of a demand out there because now the, the, the supply chain or the process is vehicles get first to the Americans than before they come to Canada? Uh, in volume, and so try to try to get your hands on it in the states versus Canada. Yeah, I, I, I'm not aware of um, you know any surplus of vehicles in the U.S. that could be going up to Canada. We're just as short of them uh, down here as well. Um, you know, there's there's a few vehicles on the lot, but you know, generally speaking, you know, you have to go in and put down money 
for a car that isn't there that is going to hopefully show up in six months. And, and we're in the same boat. Um, you know, I, I think the other thing we're seeing is everyone's, you talked about electric vehicles. Uh, everyone's talking about, uh, you know, buying electric vehicles. It's not clear to me that we're going to be able to easily transition to electric vehicles either. Um, the reason is the entire supply chain is designed around the internal combustion engine. <laughs> and you don't just switch everybody over to, uh, you know, to start building electric vehicles overnight. So there's, there's some confusion there. And the, the other piece of it, of course, is uh, you know, we're, we're still struggling with a lot of the metals that go into those electric vehicles, nickel, cobalt, uh, zinc. You know, those are in short supply, and they're in places like you know, Chile and the Congo and these weird places. So it's, it's going to be a struggle to get all of those minerals out that we need to produce these electric vehicles as well. So it sounds like it's going to be a while before things start to normalize. Uh, Rob, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, some good insight on what's happening in the supply chain. My pleasure. Ho hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys will get some uh, continue with this nice weather down there. So I talked to my mom. She's loving it. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>, hopefully. <laughs> We've been joined with Rob Hanfield, Professor of Supply Chain Management at North Carolina State University. We've had these types of conversations in the past, Rob, about rivalries between countries. Uh, a lot of the listeners and viewers of the show will remember uh, the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia. Um, the rivalry now between U.S. and China is a big one. And we thought we have to put some light to this because I'll go back, uh, I'd say four or five years ago, as I called it a technological Cold War between these two countries. And so now it comes time to talk about what does this rivalry really mean? How does it impact everybody? As Canadians, what does that impact us considering where we're located ge ge geographically? Um, but we need to bring a, 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 uh, an expert understanding this whole, this whole piece. And that's why we have Carl Delfield. He is the, uh, the US channel rivalry expert. He is an expert on Asia, emerging markets, rare metals, and alternative assets. Carl, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Okay, so you, you've written a book. For those of you who don't know about his book, his, uh, it is uh, available and ready to go called Power Rivals uh, America and China's Superpower Struggle. Um, Carl, tell us, tell us more about the book itself first. Sure. Uh, well, I think America, uh, well, Canada and the West is in uncharted territory right now because, as you alluded just a moment ago, we had a, a, a power rivalry with China, I mean with Japan, but that was primarily economic. They were an ally, uh, a democracy, um, and that was a very intense rivalry, and it still actually goes on right now. And then, of course, the Soviet Union was primarily military and ideological. But with China, it's what they call in Washington a full-spectrum peer rival. It's all four. It's technology, as you mentioned. It's economic, it's military, and it's ideological. And we've never had as strong a rival as China. Um, when you look at, at uh, the book itself, um, what were the biggest surprising parts that you found when you were, when you were putting this together? Well, I, I, I started uh, in Asia with Japan. So I, I knew Japan well, and then I went to the Philippines with, uh, on the board of the Asian Development Bank. So I learned a lot more about Southeast Asia. I'm not a China expert, 
But in researching this book, I was uh, taken back about how quickly China has caught up to the United States. I'll give you one example. I don't know if you're football fans, but if you look like in uh, the year 2000, the U.S. represented about 28% of world GDP, and China was at 3%. So your halftime at a Super Bowl, the score is 28 to 3, you're feeling pretty good. Last year, the score would have been 23 to 16. So you can see how we're uh, uh, one score away, as they say, from a turnaround. Um, China has just made remarkable gains over the last four decades. And not in technology, you know, they, uh, they're, 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 they're getting close to being peer rivals, whether it's a, a artificial intelligence, cyber, right across the board. And then military spending is really ramped up. China is already an Asia superpower. It represents half of Asia's GDP, half of Asia's uh, military spending. And keep in mind, for from from a North American perspective, it's an it's a home game for China and a, an away game for us. Carl, based on that conversation, saying you said military superpower, do you feel like the United States is going to lose that? proverbial global title of the of the main superpower? Well, you know, it, it depends how you define it. Um, you know, technically, we're, we're, we're getting close uh, on current trends to perhaps losing that or sharing it. Uh, and I'll give you a, another example that people don't realize. You know, China obviously is four times the population of the United States. They have tremendous scale. They're the largest manufacturer by a very significant margin, maybe 25% of world manufacturing, the largest trading nation in the world, something that the U.S. used to be not, not all that long ago. Um, that People don't realize now China's the largest trading partner with the European Union now and with South America. So um, they, they really are a, a stiff challenge, and I think – People were asleep here in Washington in the U.S. I think now that complacency has fallen away. Now we have the risk is going the other way too far, right? The, uh, hyping, hyping it and playing political games with the challenge. But I think we, we, need, we need to realize that this is uh, a decisive decade and that China is a real, a real rival and there's serious consequences for the West. When we go back in history, Carl, we look back at some of the major dynasties in the past. Let's talk about Great Britain as an example and so forth. Uh, the passing of the next um, superpower, I think it was the Dutch to the Britons, Britain to, to the U.S., U.S. possibly now to China. Those The handoff is not like a track and field event where you just pass a baton. It can become very um, bloody. It can become very painful to a lot of members within the country and the peripheral areas. Um, should China become this next uh, superpower where the baton is being passed, where do you see the, the, the risks, the, the damage, and where do you see the opportunity? Well, you're right. I mean, it's a period of, I, I call this decade a period of uh, opportunity, but equally a, a period of vulnerability. And the handoff you mentioned, um, 
uh, is important because with the U.S. and Britain, we were, you know, we were competitors, uh, much more intense competitors than people realized throughout the 19th century into the 20th century. When in by 1910 we were a larger economy, uh, and then of course uh, the Great Depression and then World War II, where we were allies, and that's really where the handoff almost formally took place quite quickly, quite peacefully, uh, and we continued to be strong allies. So that was an easy um, handoff. Uh, China, of course, is a whole different game because we're so different culturally. Uh, we have different political systems, different cultures. We're in different parts of the world. When you think about it, we're, we're, we're very different. Um, and, and the U.S., of course, and you can see in terms of what's happening in the world, is not going to, is not inclined to hand over that baton very gracefully. <laughs> so you're right, the, the, the chances for conflict, and we can talk about Taiwan, uh, are, are real. When, one last question before we have to go for commercial break. We've got under two minutes to go. Uh, just wanted to kind of get an understanding of what your thoughts behind this. When we look at the passing of the baton, or even if you go to the Cold War between Russia and the Americans, uh, countries had to decide which side they were on. Were they on Team Russia or Team USA? In this rivalry, I believe countries will have to decide what team they're on. Now, when you look at countries in the European Union, a, a big superpower, economically speaking, uh, but because of of a geo of political reasons, they might have to pick one side. But because of economic reasons, they might have to pick another side. Who do you see on Team China, and who do you see on Team USA if they had to pick sides? That's a very good question, and I think the Ukraine situation has changed things a little bit because in my book, which of course was written primarily last year. I talked about Europe as sort of being the key, the key man in the middle. Um, when you look at Europe, they already trade more with China than they do with the United States. And countries like Germany, which of course is by far the dominant economic power in Europe, they have traded more with China than the United States every year for the last six years. They sell two to three times more BMWs in China than they do in the United States. And so the whole auto industry, and then the other thing I would say is that China, I think this was part of China's strategy to not just be an Asian power, but to be a Eurasian empire. So they were working very hard through Belt and Road to expand through their de facto ally Russia into the heart of Europe. In fact, they were shipping tremendous um, amounts of uh, goods by rail from, from China to Europe. And so um, I would say before Ukraine, I would say a lot of uh, Germany and some of the other nations were on the fence and we'll have to see how this, all this plays out. But um, you, you're absolutely right that Europe is sort of the fulcrum and um, the Western hemisphere, North and South America together is a billion people. That's still 400 million short of just China. That's crazy. It's crazy. That's crazy when you think about it that way. Carl, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us. How do our viewers and listeners get a chance to pick up your book? Where, do they, where can they buy from? Well, the easiest place to get it is uh, Amazon, Amazon.com. And uh, it's there in uh, ebook, hardback, and paperback. 
There you go. We've got Carl Delfield. He's the author of Power Rivals, America and China's Superpower Struggle, available on Amazon in any format that you pretty much like, which is fantastic. Carl, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Uh, Rob, the last segment, uh, uh, when we talk about um, memorial planning, mm-hmm. okay, uh, there's a personal connection to you on that. Um, and to the extent that you're comfortable, maybe you, you can sort of share that experience. But I think it's, it's, it's relevant not just to that piece, but I also want to connect that to this bigger notion of the uncertainty that we're facing in the markets right mm-hmm. now. But maybe just to some context, again, to the extent you're comfortable, share us your family's experience with, uh, with this notion of, of pre-planning. Yeah. So my dad passed away 14 years ago, and so we had to... We, there could have been some pre-planning because it was a known event that was going to happen at some point, but but there wasn't, right? So you were forced into all of these decisions and what was going to happen. And, you know, we went on my mom's wishes and whatnot. The problem is, is you you, you get to the point and you have to decide all these things and pre-plan my own mother's in front of her. Right. Which is tough, right? right. That's a tough conversation at the time during grieving. And the process can be a little daunting, right? You right. you may feel like you're you're buying. We chatted about this before that you're you feel like you're buying a condo, right? Right. Right. Which which face do you which place do you want to face? Is it do you want to be by the river? What do you want to do? And it, it if it can feel like that, you really wish at that point, man. I wish we wish we had planned some of these things or thought about it, so we didn't have to deal with this right now. Yeah, when you didn't have the emotion of it, yeah. right? When you weren't forced, like it, it's this notion of of. Uh, Faisal and I last week talked about different pain points, right? You're at a point of crisis, anxiety, transition in a family member, all these things. And inevitably, you, you have to have, your, your emotions have to be heightened, mm-hmm. right? And then when you're, when you're forced to be making decisions in an emotional state, well, sometimes, though, you know, it's not the decision that you would make if you weren't in that emotional state. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I talked to you and I listened to your experience about that, that's sort of what I took away. And, and as you and I were talking about it, um, you know, as we were thinking about this show, it, it struck us that 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 experience is similar to what people are experiencing right now in conversations that you've had with clients and mm-hmm. and others and, and myself as well. When we get down markets, when you get uncertainty about inflation and interest rates or whatever it is, right, insert uncertainty here, you tend to get um, the anxiety goes up. Yep. The emotion goes up. Right. And, and as we were talking about different conversations, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, that I think is important from a planning perspective is uh, is there's all kinds of uncertainty, legit concerns. I had a conversation this past week with a client about uh, the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons being used in the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the war there. And it was a, it was a fascinating conversation because emotionally this person came in and clearly was terrified of this outcome, right. not just from a humanitarian perspective, but what it would do then to, to their retirement savings and everything else. And I get it. Trust me, that's it, it's not a zero probability. Okay, um, It's a terrifying thing to think about, but we had to put it in context. What do we do about that, right, from a planning perspective? And we used a framework um, that I think was very helpful for them. And we, we talked about, okay, if, if we have to identify the assumptions under which we're planning for, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, let's insert tactical nuclear weapons in our investment strategy thesis. Okay, then we have to think about the probability of that event happening. Mm, no empirical math that you're going to be able to do, but you've got to come up with some probability of an event because emotionally, it, it's 100% always, mm-hmm. right? 
but they're going to use this, I'm terrified, and everything's going to be destroyed. Okay, so it's not a zero probability, but what's the probability that, that could happen? And we had to attach, as a group, a probability. And then we had to think about, okay, what asset classes would either protect uh, against that issue right. happening and or profit from it, right? And then we had to uh, integrate that assumption, the probability, and the asset classes into the overall wealth strategy, right? To come up with then an asset mix, a wealth strategy that made sense for them. Now, um, we ended up doing that. Again, we, it, it's it's a it's an educated guess at this particular point. But what it did do is it gave them a little sense of 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 control over integrating some protections, some some layerings, mm -hmm. some different approaches to address their concerns. Right now, how is that related to what you're talking about? When people get in heightened emotional states, right, whatever that fear is, that pain point that's creating the anxiety, tends to override everything else. Yep. Right. And if we get into a position where we're we're emotionally making that decision, right, with 100% certainty that that's going to be the outcome, that's it's where tough. we get ourselves into it. We make decisions that maybe we wouldn't have made had we not been, you know, in that emotionally charged environment, whether it's planning for a passing of a, of a family member, right, right? Um, if it's cashing out, cashing out, going yeah. to cash, or, you know, it's doing something very, very aggressive. Right. So I, I thought that that was an you know it was an interesting connection um, that that we were dealing with and we'll we'll likely be dealing with for a little bit of time here. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, the hundred percent probability that future events will happen. Right. Right. I think that's the conversations that I've been having. For sure. Right. Yeah. And 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 ask yourself the question. So when when we put together um, uh, portfolio strategies, right, we think in terms of base case. But then you always humbly ask yourself, what if we're wrong? And you can be wrong two ways, right? You can be wrong and it's worse than you expect. You can be wrong and it's better than you expect. Almost never do, we, do you get it perfectly right because there's too many yep. moving pieces, right? But if you plan on the side of caution. Correct. Well, it just determine, right? Determine what your goals and objectives are. We tend to run a, a retirement business, so we tend to err on the side of protection in the right. event that something goes wrong. Okay, that might that means often that you're leaving some on the table, right, on the way up, which frustrates people as well. But you got to pick your poison at some point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you got to pick your strategy, but you got to have a playbook too, Rob. And, and talk to me a little bit about this. You know, when when you put that that thesis together, um, things change all the time. We've talked about it. it's dynamic environment all the time, and so you can't just be thinking about today, but you have to be thinking about what you're going to do. Mm -hmm if the data changes, right? Or if new input comes in. And so this notion of being dynamic and having the options, in the event this happens, here's what we would do. In the event that this happens, here's what we would do. Now here's, I'm gonna use a very dramatic example because using the conversation I had uh, with this couple about the tactical nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. okay? So I said, um, so in this particular case, we built in a level of protection to their portfolio that would be different than our base case because of these assumptions. I said, so what shakes us off this position? Because I said, here's what I'm going to plant the seed, the, uh, the seed with you on. If that event comes to pass, a, a tactical nuke gets lit up, that, as scary as it's going to be, will be your buying opportunity. Because right. the alternative is if it goes further and it's a global nuclear war, nothing we talk about today is going to matter. Right. Right? So it's either it's game over or 
that's as bad, it, and it's going to go up from there. Anyways, I hope that framework helps. We got we got to wrap up this uh, this segment, uh, but before we do that, we should talk to everybody about our upcoming seminar. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday, July nineteenth, seven p.m. live <laughs> online. Now you need to register for this, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.